Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we incite you with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. This edition is dedicated to the memory of Charles Willock, my dear friend of 30 years and contributor to Diffusion for half that time. Interviewing, presenting and the difficult job of fact and production checking. Charles was trained in physics, astronomy, photography, engineering, TV production, sound production, microphone engineering, and computing, at least. He'd worked at Australia's Antarctic Research Station and was active with Whistleblowers Anonymous. He was working on a PhD in artificial intelligence. Charles produced two shows interviewing experts on nuclear waste and nuclear proliferation, which I may rebroadcast this year. Together we produced a special edition on the Howard government's ID card legislation where the interviewer was disguised by a synthetic voice. Here's Charles explaining the physics of nuclear waste. Plutonium-239 decays to uranium-235 by emission of an alpha particle, which consists of two protons and two neutrons. Plutonium is also chemically toxic and can catch fire easily when finely divided. Like uranium-235, the isotope plutonium-239 is also quite problematic in that it is particularly suitable for creating nuclear bombs and only a very small quantity is required. A radioactive material needs to be stored for about 10 times its half-life to ensure safety from its radioactive properties. An important example is plutonium-239, which has a half-life of 24,100 years and thus needs to be safely stored for a period of around 240,000 years. 2007 was an election year, so Charles, Dr Patrick Ruby and I discussed the politics of science. With an election coming up, it's a good time to talk about the politics of science again. I'm talking to Charles Willock in the studio and Patrick Ruby. Science was abused just very recently with the pulp mill decision in Tasmania. For example, they couldn't describe how the pulp mill would affect air pollution because it's not in the terms of reference. So all the things that they wanted them to ignore, they carefully set out, and the things that they could include, they set out. So they got a report that supports the policy they'd already decided on. And um, all this after the discussion they had on the ABC a couple of weeks ago about the pulp mills. What did they say? There was a site that would have been more suitable than the site that they were currently looking at for the construction of the pulp mill and they had decided not to build there. So I would have thought it was quite a heated discussion actually and I think the audience ended up being on the side of those who were protesting the development of the mill. I'd have to say that I probably was convinced by the argument against and it just comes as a surprise hearing from you then, Ian, that they're deciding to go ahead with it. Well, as I said, I think it's another case where instead of having reality-based politics where you find out what's happening in the world, you get someone to write you a report, and then you decide on the policy that's appropriate. They do the opposite. The thing that concerned me was if that's the way they make decisions about industrial things such as pulp mills, how are they going to make decisions about nuclear power stations? 
So if they're saying before the election, oh, well, we'll have a plebiscite, and yet, in fact, the way they make decisions is they precondition their reports uh, to be in favour, then they, for example, spend $12 million on an Aboriginal settlement and they make sure that they have control over all of the access to the Aboriginal locations for possible nuclear waste dumps in the Northern Territory. And then after it, they say, oh, well, we've decided and we're not actually going to give you a chance to comment, then I think that's a seriously wrong way of approaching things. One possible alternative, and I'm not suggesting this is necessarily practical, but maybe something to think about, that if we have important issues, and environment is certainly an important issue, as is various types of uh, power requirements, if we have a referendum on each of the important issues, people can then decide at the time of the election as to what they're going to choose, which way they're going to go, whether they're going to go large-scale industrial nuclear power or whether they're going to go small-scale networked-type systems to solve the energy problem. A conscience vote for the people. Yeah, pretty radical, I know. But yes. So you mean sort of more like voting by by specific policies as opposed to voting for a party yes. that then has its own policies? Yes. A conscience vote. So you don't have to stick to party lines. You actually vote for what you think is the best policy on a one particular bit of legislation. And once, once the issues have been resolved, and if, of course, they are clearly resolved one way or another, it makes it very easy for groups who can either completely or partially fulfil those requirements for all of those policies that have been decided on. So, if you like, it would be some kind of two-stage or multi-stage uh, selection process, but at least there is, seems to be a possibility that the policies are decided by the people and the people that administer those policies are decided by the people. And that would save all sorts of nonsense that goes on at present. It also actually give them policies, which they seem to be otherwise short of most of the time. Well, there does seem to be a rather lack of vision. I think, I think the problem is that they haven't got a vision. They haven't got people with a scientific vision. They've got lawyers and businessmen and economists who are great people to have and have their insight and the way of looking at things that's really important to actually get things done. But I think maybe it's a, an opportunity to get more scientists and engineers into, into the policy selection idea. Other than doctors, the medical doctors, what other science-qualified people do we have? We don't even have a Ministry for Science anymore. That was abolished by Bob Hawke back 20-odd years ago. Actually, that sort of expands the whole idea of who we should include in politics or who we should allow into politics. On a slightly radical note, maybe gymnasts should be included because, in a serious sense, they have a different view of life and so, if you like, their way of looking at the world from, from a purely physical point of view might, in fact, be quite a beneficial one or at least a challenging one for most other people because they don't see it the same way and that could stimulate the the ability to stimulate the ideas by having a different perspective might be really quite a useful one especially for people who are quite skilled in their different ways of learning or different ways of processing things well i was thinking of gymnasts particularly because of their ability to do backflips but <laughs> and that's very valuable in politics of course also it seems yeah what about having uh, some kind of I mean, extending the possibilities in terms of people's abilities or learning styles or perspectives on the world. 
What about we have a rotating members of parliament? So instead of having one group of lawyers being employed for, for three years or a variable number of years, depending on whether they can actually sustain the pace or not, we have a rotating series. So, for example, we could have every three months or every six months we could change the people who are doing the presenting or the people who are doing research or have some sort of rotating process. We might, for example, have women occupying all of the positions in Parliament for one segment of three months. So there's a bunch of scientists talking about politics, and perhaps that's why we don't have more scientists in <laughs> politics. As well as his concerns over nuclear power, Charles also had a unique perspective on why some people don't like wind power. Alternative sources of energy each have upsides and downsides. Today we look a little closer at wind power from the perspective of human perception and attention. The issue for wind farms arises from the fact that, for detecting danger, human beings are tuned to be alert to changes. Ability to pick up small changes, even tiny changes in the environment, may, in the past, have meant the difference between survival and elimination. To some extent, we retain that detection ability. Humans are sensitive to variations in both sound and vision. Because there is a finite limit to mental resources which can be allocated to processing such information, repetitive images and constant sounds tend to be tuned out through the process of habituation. Habituation refers to the decreased automatic reaction to a repeated stimulus. For example, when walking into a room containing a pendulum clock, one might notice the pendulum moving. Movement! Aha! Something interesting, says the eyes. But fairly quickly, one chooses to ignore the signals as the process becomes movement. Oh, that, it's only the pendulum. Nothing interesting there. Move on. The habituation effect also applies to sound. And the auditory and visual senses are difficult to turn off. Perhaps not surprisingly, different people have quite different sensitivity to stimulus. Some people jump when touched on the shoulder from behind, others don't. Different people have different levels of habituation for sound and visual change. Some can completely ignore repetitive sound, while others are driven to distraction. Some find that they can tune out blinking advertisements on web pages. Others find them really, really irritating and ongoingly distracting. One aspect of variation of sensitivity and habituation relies on what is called breadth of attention. One might have a wide breadth of attention or a narrow one. People with narrow breadth of attention tend to be able to focus uninterrupted on what they are doing. That's a good thing. Those with a wide breadth of attention tend to be more easily interrupted. The importance of attentional response differs too in the extent to which each individual feels stressed or alarmed and the overall level of distraction and distress they feel. Some of those sensitivities are cultural. Some arise naturally. The impact of those sensitivities also depends on the context in which those distractions take place. For land-based wind farms to be cost-effective and to produce worthwhile quantities of electricity, turbines need to be large and to be positioned at places of good, consistent winds. Desirable locations for electricity production are in mountain passes, along ridgelines, on coastal cliffs or plains, or on hills rising from those plains. To reduce transmission losses, wind farms should be placed close to where the electricity will be used.
Unfortunately for land-based locations, places of higher wind speed tend to overlap with photogenic localities. The way people respond to wind turbines also differs. Some appreciate the visual form. They admire the elegant sweeping curves of turbine blades. Many appreciate the ongoing reassurance that power for our modern society is being generated from a low-pollution energy source. Others, however, find wind turbines visually irritating. Their attention is drawn away from the scenery they want to see. Not everyone wants their still photographs of the environment to contain rows of wind turbines in the mountain passes or along the ridges. Not everyone wants their videos to contain the distraction of waving blades of turbines in the background. And not everyone wants to habituate to moving objects. They feel distracted by them and can find that distressing. Wind farms can also be ocean-based. Placing them some distance offshore reduces visual and acoustic impact. However, construction costs of ocean-based wind farms can be high, in part due to the need to provide deep footings and the difficulties of construction. Maintenance costs are also higher because of the tougher marine environment. Noise distraction is an important issue. While noise can be habituated to some extent, and modern turbines are designed to adjust their blades to improve efficiency at different wind speeds, thereby reducing overall noise, they still produce different noise levels and different noise profiles at different wind speeds. And during wind gusts. Those same gust-induced noise variations attract attention. Gustiness increases with wind speed. Thus the sound from wind turbines keeps changing as the wind changes, which makes it really distracting for some people who have a wide breadth of attention and who can't habituate to changing noises. It keeps drawing their attention away from what they want to focus on, and it distresses them. Cities and towns often grow in places of convenience and scenic beauty. Those include topologically interesting features such as mouths of rivers, in majestic mountain valleys, and the like. Wind farms, however, tend to be located in country areas quite often some distance from the cities. Critics argue that if wind turbines really are as elegant and as quiet as the proponents make out, why not locate them within those towns or major cities? And if turbines really were as aesthetic as proponents suggest, maybe turbines could be sited on harbours and along coastlines as an added tourist attraction. Locating wind farms in towns and cities would have a real benefit of having very short distances to places of high demand, leading to minimal energy losses and lowered cost. A wind turbine tower has a relatively small footprint, so maybe they could be located comfortably in small local parks, or positioned on the top of tall buildings within a city, although that might indeed create difficulties for helicopter movements. So far, such siting proposals have received strong opposition. If wind farms are not that attractive in cities, why, critics argue, should the city reap all the benefits while the country put up with the downside? If there are drawbacks with respect to siting, then it would seem fair that those who benefit most should also bear most of the cost. Why should a rural location be the acoustic and visual dumping ground for city dwellers? Then again, maybe it is a matter of demanding that those with visual and auditory sensitivity, a wide breadth of attention, be trained to habituate better. But there are also problems with that. Sensitivity to sound and motion 
a wide breadth of attention, allows just those people to be much more sensitive to subtle changes in society. Not unexpectedly, a wide breadth of attention is also strongly correlated with creativity. Surely, having creativity and an early warning system are just those attributes to be cultivated by a society. For all of the above reasons, and in spite of the additional cost, it seems increasingly likely that wind farms will be located over water at some distance from the shore. Good wind, out of sight, out of earshot, and out of mind. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. After a story about the science of fireworks and the laws regulating them, Charles surprised us with this story about his part in the 2000 Sydney Olympics. So the 2000 Olympics I performed in the opening and the closing ceremonies and one of the things to try and convince people that I should perform on main stage was I needed to have some sort of street cred and so I got a pyro licence. So clearly if I was going to do fire breathing on main stage then having a pyro licence sort of looked impressive. You did fire breathing on the main stage? Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh, wow. And uh, did the closing ceremony as well. It was... It was quite a buzz. It was a, I mean, it was a huge audience, 120,000 people or something like that. And we were pretty well prepared. And one of the things about performing in front of a group that size is you don't get sort of the nerves that you get when you're performing, say, in front of a few thousand people. You just walk out there and the audience is a long distance away from you, so you don't get the sort of personal feedback and the, the nerve issues that you get in a smaller group. What they didn't warn us of was the fact that as we came out, the whole place would light up with a terrific pyro display and everyone had those flashing armbands and torches. We came on, blew our first flame, and the whole place erupted. It was just a most amazing feeling where everyone was flashing their torches and waving their hands and there were flashing LEDs all over the place. There were 120,000 people and we were, of course, broadcasting to 4 billion people worldwide as well. It was quite an experience. What did it take to get a licence for the Sydney Olympics as a pyro? Well, no, I didn't actually have it as a pyro for the Olympics. What I had was a, 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 an indoor licence, if you like, ah. the ability to, to detonate things safely. Uh, that's not a one to you know be a practitioner at the Olympics. I so maybe, maybe an explosive licence for, for children is what we need. I, I think, actually, there's probably difficulties with that. I, really? I wouldn't, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah I, would, I wouldn't encourage a lot of people to go out and get it. And the other thing is I'm almost certain that the rules will have changed since then because of the 2001 um, New York issue. Okay, so the answer is to lock up your pets and get a license in the future. (laughs) Education is the solution. Education is the key. Scientific education, indeed. And finally, when Diffusion got an independent website and URL, Charles celebrated the occasion by explaining how someone with synesthesia would hear the colours and taste the sounds of www.diffusionradio.com. This is a light-hearted look at synesthesia, the remarkable ability of some people to perceive one sense as another. That is not to say that synesthesia is a light-hearted matter, since sometimes it might be good to be able to turn it off. But here we are trying to illustrate the concept. 
Consider, for example, some computer functions are represented as sounds. If something is broken, then the computer might give you the sound of breaking glass. There are many different varieties of synesthesia. One is where people can see written numbers as colours. Four might be red, and three might be blue. So, three plus four equals magenta. Hey, that could be useful at times. So let's sense, for example, what a written URL might sound like. Gov might be perceived as a snoring sound. And perhaps edu could be represented by a school bell. Anyway, you get the idea. For the purpose of illustration, I've chosen the new website for Diffusion Radio, www.diffusionradio.com. To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the semicolon. Two of something. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? That sounds pretty good. The www seems easy enough. We could have anything that goes woo woo woo, such as an owl. And there are some good owl sounds out there. Maybe a didgeridoo. That can be pretty funky. Maybe clapping. Simple and easy to remember. However, when my friend Errol suggested the sound of a loon, which is a kind of a Canadian bird which looks like a duck, but isn't a duck, well, that had to be it. Loons sometimes make a really spooky tremolo sound. Here's part of a clip with kind permission of US Fish and Wildlife Service. For the diffusion radio part, we can do a voiceover and make it kind of um, a bit spacey sounding with, uh, with some technology. Diffusion radio. <laughs> Thank you, Marina. Now, the issue of .com. A raspberry sound comes to mind. Maybe that's a bit unfair. And this is a family show. And besides, many dot-coms do good things too. Maybe we can settle for something a little milder. If all that works, we have some celebrating to do. That could be uh, the download process, for example. So, just about time to put this all together. The HTTP. We can tie it all together with the dots. Let's give it a bit of a musical intro and see how it sounds. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Here we go again. Diffusion 
Well, what do you reckon? Thanks, Duck. Thank you, Charles. You are missed. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.